it's uh, good to see you. Um, my name is Brian. If we haven't met yet, I'm so glad that you're here with us. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if we haven't met yet, I'd love to get an opportunity to meet you. So hopefully, uh, we'll have a chance to do that soon. Uh, feel free to come find me afterwards. I'd love to. Uh, t- I'd love to say hello. Through this Advent season, our goal has been to use a variety of different media to be able to encounter the truth. Uh, so often, uh, in not just this church, but all churches. The, um, the declaration of the word through teaching is the primary way we encounter truth, and we'll continue to do that as well. But uh, during this season, we're using a variety of different songs and uh, pieces of art to be able to engage truth. And so I know you've already been spoken to to some degree today, and uh, we are going to uh, continue through this series uh, meditating on what's true in a variety of different forms. Um, it, if you haven't been with us, uh, this series is called Portraits of Advent, and we've been walking through the prophecy that Isaiah made of Jesus who would come in Isaiah 9:6, calling him our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father as we're looking at today, and our prince of peace, which we'll look at next week. And so each of those weeks, we've not only listened to a song and engaged with a piece of visual art, but we've uh, engaged with an Advent candle reading and uh, the declaration of what's true, both uh, scripturally and as we engage uh, the history of the church. And so I'm gonna invite Latanya Green to come. And Latanya, uh, many of you met her for the first time a few weeks ago as she gave us a beautiful testimony of the grace of God as she's uh, connected with this body and we're really thankful for her and uh, thankful for her reading today. So would you listen uh, as she reads of our everlasting Father? Good morning. Everlasting Father, let me show you the implications of this. As long as the heir is a minor, he has no advantage over the slave. Though legally he owns the entire inheritance, he is subject to the tutors and administrators until whatever date the father has set for emancipation. That is the way it is with us. When we were minors, we were just like slaves, ordered around by simple instructions, the tutors and the administrators of this world, with no say in the conduct of our own lives. But when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent his son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, so that he might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. Thus we have been set free to experience our rightful inheritance. You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives crying out, Papa, Father, doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave, but a child of God? And if you are a child, you are also an heir, the complete, with complete access to the inheritance. Galatians 4, one through seven. Jesus, the embodiment of the perfect plan of God, as well as containing all of the might of the fullness of God. But the question remains, why? We are God's bitter enemies, those who were turned from him, spit on him, completely disregarded him. We aren't simply sinful people. We are God's enemies, 
So why would, the, why would he orchestrate a plan to save us and utilize his might to carry it out? The simple answer is his love. He loves us completely as the perfect father loves his children. Even in our rebellion, the father stands at the door eagerly awaiting our return. With such a great and deep love, there is nothing we can do, nothing that can be done to us, which can separate us from him. Amen. The everlasting father candle reminds us of Jesus's embodiment of the father's love for us. In the midst of our sin and rebellion, Jesus breaks in with the tender, merciful love of the Father and lovingly calls us back to him. The truth of Emmanuel, God with us, is that there is absolutely nothing we could ever do that would get in between us and the crazy love that God has for us. Yes. Not only that, but, his, but this same Father steps into our mess and sin and rescues us. We have complete freedom as the sons and daughters of God. What incredible, amazing love. We exclaim with the hymn writer, how can it be that you would die for me? Amazing love. Thank you, Jesus. Let us pray. Everlasting Father, he who was, who is, and who is to come, as we go through this season, we are humbled by your unfathomable depths of your love that is revealed in the embodiment of your perfect plan, Jesus Christ. Yes. May our hearts be filled with kind, kindness, thankfulness, and awe for the amazing love that sent Jesus to die for us. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible gift. Amen. 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 Thank you, LaTanya. If you remember back in early 2022, there were a bunch of words being kicked around. Um, for those of us who don't have any medical background, uh, they were uh, foreign words, at least to me. Uh, maybe they were to you as well. We were uh, seeking to discern the difference between a pandemic, which we had been in, and an endemic, that we were supposedly moving towards. My very uh, layperson, uneducated understanding of that is a pandemic was something that uh, was, was presently acute and we needed to engage it in a way that would, um, by decisions that we were making, the actions that we were making, slow the spread of it. Endemic, meaning that we just needed to live with it. We needed to kind of figure out how to treat and how to manage and how to kind of work with it. And there was a lot of conversation as to whether COVID-19 uh, was a pandemic or it was moving to an endemic what that would look like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I don't want to weigh in on that debate as much as I want to say that statistically, fatherlessness in the United States is at least an endemic in that it has been for generations a significant statistical reason why our culture struggles to be able to produce health. Let me give you some stats. This is from the US Census Bureau. Nearly 18.5 million children, or 25% of American kids, are raised without fathers in their home. Now of that group, um, it's not just that 25% of kids don't have a dad at home, 
but that 80% of single-parent homes are mother-led single-parent homes, and the statistics of uh, those homes are really uh, eye-popping, um, earth-shattering in a literal way. Uh, 85% of children and teens with behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 85%. Over 70% of all adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers come from homes without dads. The statistics are the same if you look at incarceration rates, if you look at teen pregnancy rates, if you look at just about any factor that leads into cycles of poverty and destruction, the rates of fatherlessness are off the charts. That's houses without a father. It doesn't take into account abusive fathers, absent fathers, disengaged fathers, manipulative fathers, and all other kinds of broken fathers like me and like you if you're a father. We all have experienced to one degree or another the brokenness of a father. And so what that means statistically is that as I'm speaking to you, your and my perception of what a father is is a bit warped. And yet, the God who is eternal and knows all things persistently uses the image of father to represent God to us. In the New Testament letters alone, God is referred to as father 71 times. That's just the letters. That's not Jesus talking about his father or about him as our father. That's not even taking into account the entirety of the Old Testament where the fatherhood of God is a mega theme for Israel. And so how do we deal with the fact that we have this warped view of a father and yet God insists on us seeing him as a father? That leads me to my first time ever one-point sermon. I want to simply answer the question, what does it mean that God is a perfect father? What's it mean to have a perfect father? Now, it's a one-point sermon with five subpoints. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> but we'll go quick because Kevin showed me how to do it in 15 minutes, so we're going to try. All right. So um, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles, if you don't have them open already, to, and move to Galatians chapter 4. We're actually going to look at the last couple of verses in Galatians chapter 3 and then move into Galatians 4. There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of ways to answer this question. I thought of three or four more just as I was sitting here this morning. Um, I, I only want to hit five answers to the question. And I want to move very quickly through them because I think we will intuitively understand the distinction between our earthly father and our heavenly father and what it means for us to enter into the fatherhood of God. And so um, as we pick up in Galatians chapter 4, I want to go to a couple of verses earlier to uh, the end of Galatians chapter 3. Let me read for you uh, starting in verse 25. But now that faith has come, Paul writes, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as there were baptized into Christ, uh, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
The first thing I want you to see is that a perfect father gives us identity. A, a perfect father, um, maybe better said, calls us back to the identity that we've already been given. Genesis chapter one and two recount a, um, a creation narrative that uh, identifies us as people, as those who are co-creators alongside God, who have been elevated to a place among creation that is unique among all of creation, that we uh, are our representative rule based on the rule of God of all the world, creating out of chaos order, just as God did in creation. That's our identity. That's who we're called to be. And so when we're called into God's family, we're called back into the identity that he's already created in us. Each one of our families have a unique identity, and we don't need to do anything to get into it. We simply are that identity. Let me show you an easy way to look at that. Um, Mark chapter one, when uh, Jesus is introduced to us by the gospel writer Mark, we don't see any action of Jesus until the adult Jesus is going down to the river about to be baptized by his cousin John. No teachings, no words, nothing that he's done. Jesus shows up on the scene being baptized. And if you remember that narrative, what happens is Jesus goes down into the river, comes out of the river in Mark's gospel, still wordless, not having spoken one thing. And the first voice that we hear is not Jesus' voice, but the voice of the Father saying, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. And the dove, the Holy Spirit, comes and lights on Jesus. Is he fully and completely pleased in Jesus because he's a great teacher? Nope, hasn't taught anything. Because he's a great miracle worker? Nope, no miracles as far as we have seen from Mark's gospel. As far as we know, Jesus has done literally nothing. And he is identified as the son, the, the well-loved, perfectly loved son of the father who could not be more pleased with him. The identity that we are given by our Heavenly Father is his perfect, loving pleasure in us. Not based on what we've done, but based on who he's made us to be. But the perfect Father giving us identity also means rebuke. And here's what I mean by that. We need to be called back by that perfect Father to the identity that we've been given. One way to look at sin, there's lots of different ways to look at sin. One way to look at sin is when we act outside of the identity that we've been given by God. That we seek to create for ourselves an identity that we believe to be better. We see it in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and everywhere after that, that we know better than him. And so the rebuke of God is simply calling us back to the identity that he's created in us, that he's, uh, that he's placed in us. There's two different ways to look at identity. Either we are going to live from the identity that God's already placed in us, or we are going to live for an identity that we are longing for. I need to perform in a certain way. I need to live in a certain way. I need to become a certain thing. If I'm gonna, uh, if I'm gonna be seen that way, I need to prove myself. I need to earn it. And it's all of those things that God the Father, the loving Father, rebukes out of us 
and calls us back to remembering the most important thing, the only important thing, out of which everything else flows, is that we are sons and daughters of the Father. The perfect Father gives us his identity. Secondly, the perfect Father gives us belonging. The end of that passage, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, all of you are one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He uh, invites us into the family. The Apostle John, when he's uh, writing his letter, he, he talks about this idea, how marvelous it is that we get to be, call, get to be called children of God. And we don't know exactly how it went, but it almost seems like he was talking to the scribe who's writing down, and there's this kind of a side comment that gets thrown into 1 John chapter 3, where he says, uh, it's so marvelous that we get to be called children of God, and that is what we are. Can you believe it? It's amazing. We've been invited in to the family. Not only is God our father, but our brothers and sisters are together as the family of Christ. We're invited. There, there isn't just in the U.S. today an epidemic of fatherlessness, but loneliness is one of those uh, statistically accurate epidemics, and we're invited into family. We're invited into community. We're invited into a connection with one another. Identity leads into a relational belonging. We're not just called something that's true about us, but now God is relating to us and inviting us to relate to one another. But belonging leads to pruning. John chapter 15, Jesus talks about pruning for fruitfulness, pruning those that he loves. And what that means in this context is that there are certain things that families do. Maybe uh, that's true of your family. It's certainly true of my family. I can give you lots of uh, examples of both really fun, good things that families do and some of those other kinds of things, right? There are certain ways that we celebrate and certain things, ways that we play together and have fun with one another. And you don't leave your dirty dishes in the sink, right? Like both of those things are just true. And, and maybe, maybe in your family you can leave the dirty dishes in the sink, but you can't in our family. You're not allowed to do that, right? And nope, nope, Carla said not in my house either. That's right. Yeah. And, and so it, it's all part of the process as, as we prune back to our identity. There's certain ways that we say this, this is who we are. This is how we live. This is what it means to be part of the family. Not to earn it. Not so that we would become part of our family. We don't excommunicate our children when they leave dirty dishes in the sink. But we do prune to say, hey, come clean this up. Remember, this is how we do it. This is what it means to be part of our family. So the perfect father does give belonging, but belonging does also mean pruning. The perfect father also gives freedom. Let me read uh, the first couple verses of Galatians 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. For a lot of us, it's tricky to think of God, the perfect father, giving us freedom because we have this warped view of God as father that's different than our earthly fathers. We, we think of God as father for eternity, kind of doting over us and uh, walking with us as though we're a toddler. 
But think about your own uh, parenting experience of your parents or your own experience as a child, if you've been a child. Um, the, the process of parenting, the big, the big win of parenting is when kids start to do what they're supposed to do on their own, right? Like, I, I want my kids to grow up and live on their own and get out of my house, right? Like, that's, that's part of the process. That's part of joy. Like, when, when, uh, when they go out and do their thing on their own, that's, that's a good thing. And, and that's the way God is with us. He desires for us to not just uh, in every moment be asking him questions about everything, but rather be with him, but to be changed to be more like him, so that we would start to very naturally do the things that he does. Um, on Friday, I think it was, my son Josiah, who is a relatively new driver, found that he had a flat tire in his car. And um, when he had a flat tire in his car, um, his mom wasn't around and I wasn't around and he had to kind of figure it out. And he looked and he found what was going on in the tire. And he said, here's what's going on. And we gave a little bit of direction from afar by text message. And he went to one place and they didn't have time to get it done. So he went to another place and he talked to them and they figured it out and they were gonna repair it, but the tire was too damaged on the inside. And so they had to put a new tire on. And he went through and he did the entire thing by himself without me doing anything. And he paid for it. Like, hallelujah, right? Like, come on. Like, that, look, Josiah can clap for it, isn't that great? But, it, but it's like, this is, this, is what, this is what you want, right? This is what you want as a parent. You don't want to constantly have to do everything all the time, and neither does God. His call is for us to develop, to be like him, so we would very naturally start to make decisions that line up with his character. The perfect father gives freedom, but with freedom comes discipline. The text talks about the elementary rules as we begin the law that, um, that shapes in us the character of God. There are things that we do to discipline, to, uh, to help our kids become the kind of people that we desire for them to be. Hebrews chapter 12 says that no father who loves his children fails to discipline his children. And so God the Father, in love for us, disciplines us that we would grow and mature. And so we need to recognize that the love of God that brings freedom doesn't mean this worldly idea of freedom that we tend to buy into. I can do anything I want whenever I want. In, in, in the Bible, that's not called freedom. That's actually called slavery. But freedom, biblically, to be able to, in my own volition, through the new heart that God's given to me, live the way of God. That comes through discipline. And over time, God shapes his heart in me, and I start to live more like him. The perfect father gives freedom. Fourthly, almost done, the perfect father gives an inheritance. Listen in verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Some of you may be reading that and wondering why the same writer who just a few verses ago said there is no longer slave nor free nor male nor female is calling insistently us sons. There's lots of places where Paul says sons and daughters. Why doesn't he call us sons and daughters? Well, because um, in, in the ancient Near East, there's only one of those two receiving an inheritance. And so he's saying whether you're a male or a female, you're a son as it relates to the inheritance. You're receiving from God the good things of God that are coming to you. 
the blessings of God, of, of joy and of peace and the abundance of life, the fruit of the Spirit, they're yours in Christ. That one day, all that is wrong will be made right and you will be able to step into that fully and in the already and not yet kingdom, there's some of that for you right now. It's the inheritance of God. But the perfect father who gives an inheritance, that also means responsibility. One of the things that we've talked a lot about here over the last couple weeks is that the good things, the blessings of God are not intended to terminate on us, but flow through us. That when God blesses us, it's not just so that we would be more comfortable or that we would be able to uh, rest more or we'd be able to um, enjoy things more. All those are true. But when God gives us his blessing, it's so that it would flow through us to the world around us. We should be asking the question, God, what is this for? Who is this for? This blessing, this inheritance, this goodness that you've given to me, it's not just for me. What's it look like for me to be the conduit of your blessing to the world around me? Father gives us an inheritance, and with that inheritance comes responsibility. And finally, the last one I want to look at, and believe me, there's lots and lots more. Verse 5, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The perfect father means that God gives us himself. You may know that translation of uh, Abba um, in the message translation that Latanya read as Papa or Daddy. This, this intimate connection, how dramatically different from God showing up to Moses on the top of the mountain with lightning and thunder and fire and smoke. When Jesus comes, he comes to invite us into this intimate relationship with the Father to draw close. There's an invitation in that's inherent in what Paul's saying. Um, some of you know uh, all, all of our lives run in different cycles. So sometimes you're in a busy cycle. Sometimes you're in a less busy cycle. Right now, uh, I'm just in one of those cycles where if you, if you call me and say, hey, I'd like to get an appointment to come in and uh, talk about whatever it is, um, I'll probably tell you um, the fourth week of January looks uh, available. Like it's just that kind of season for me. It's just the way it is. I'm kind of booked from morning to afternoon, just kind of the way life's flowing right now. And, and so if, if you call in and look for something, I'm going to squeeze you in as best I can where I can, but it's probably going to be a bit. If one of my kids call and say, Dad, I need to talk to you right now, when are y'all going to get bumped? It's just the way it is, right? Because there's an access that you get when you're a child, and so when, when God gives us himself, what he means is your number one priority on his calendar. When, when you say, I want to talk, he's there. He's ready to receive you. But with himself also comes suffering. As we draw closer and closer to the heart of God, we experience the heart of God in a different kind of way. Jesus promised that as we follow him, we will have trouble. One of the few promises Jesus made about what happens to those who follow him is that we would suffer. And that suffering takes lots of different forms. The reality is the heart of God breaks over lots of stuff that you and I miss all the time. We just don't see. We look past. But that passage that we read together from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a couple verses before we started to read, Paul says, God's given us new eyes in Christ. We start to see differently. Things like injustice and brokenness and pain, all of a sudden they start to register with us in a way that they didn't before. We start to get just a little glimpse 
into the heart of God for his broken creation and his broken people. And so there's suffering that comes with that. There's suffering at times that come with walking closely with God and being unwilling to go with the flow of a culture that's running the other direction. There's suffering that goes as far as the fact that Jesus has given himself for us. And we are called to give ourselves for the world around us. When we come to the communion table and celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, it's not just an invitation into what he's done, but a reminder of what we're called to do. The heart of God as Father is that he is madly in love with you. He didn't just stand apart and ask you to come. He came to us. He, he stepped into our reality because he loves us. I want to end with a quote from uh, theologian J.I. Packer. He has a beautiful book called Knowing God, and, and he makes this statement. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as, as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity well at all. The heart of our faith is that we are sons and daughters, loved fully by him, and everything else flows out of that. I recognize we come with all kinds of warped views of messed up fathers and broken families part of the reality of our life, but Jesus comes not to replace, but to be the perfect father that none of us can be, and to invite us into the family of God that is learning to become his children. Well, good morning. Good morning, church. It's, uh, it's such a joy to get to share this song um, with this body. Um, so in first first praying and considering Isaiah's reference to this coming Messiah being our everlasting father, I tried to better understand the context the prophet was speaking into. The people of Israel had turned away from the one and only true God and made other gods to worship. The Hebrew word for everlasting that Isaiah is using means to perpetually continue to be forever. One of the many places in scripture where God reveals himself as everlast, an everlasting father is in the book of Hosea. The entire book speaks of the love of God, the love that God has for his people despite their turning away. And in chapter 11, there's this incredible poem. Verses 1 through 4 read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the bales and earning and burning offerings to, to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. Although distinct in a different person than God, the nature of this coming Messiah is one of a father and one with God. In Luke 19, Jesus, during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just a week before his crucifixion, crowds praised him. The Pharisees, seeing this, not recognizing Jesus' deity, told Jesus to rebuke the people. And his response, which is 
a continuation of him just flipping religious tradition on his head, is that if these people would not worship him, the very rocks would cry out. Verse 1 of this song is an attempt to remind us of the reality that is true all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus doesn't make suggestions about what might be best. He speaks truthfully, not as things should be, but as they are. This, this Jesus will receive worship, and it's often been in times of my most callous doubting if the reality of Jesus is actually true. I'm most reminded of the depths of this truth, that Jesus is who he says he is. And ultimately, there is still a place for me at his table. All the beauty we see around us points back to the giver of such beauty. When we marvel at, at a piece of artwork or find great delight in a wonderful meal or hear the laughter of a, of a baby, something stirs within our souls. All this beauty points back to the giver of such good things and the broader story that we find ourselves swept up in. Creation can't help but speak of its creator. Verse 2 of the song aims to allude to the striking of our own heel that has continued since the fall. We seek lesser things only to find they don't satisfy our deepest longings. And yet just as in Jesus' miracle in John 9 where a blind man is healed, he uses mud, dirty things, worldly means to establish his ways. Crooked sticks can make straight lines. Verse 3 is my own confession that I'm prone to leave the God that I love. The weight of sin and the lie of a serpent can still shift my gaze away from Jesus walking on the water and towards the crashing waves below. And yet, church, in all of our wandering, there is a God, a Father, whose thoughts are unending towards us, like every grain of sand. I can't help but mention that verse 4 is certainly a nod to the final track of Bob Dylan's Shot of Love record. And in all honesty, I think most more modern-day songs are simply rewritten, not-as-good Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> but I think Dylan, and certainly myself, are echoing the truth declared in Psalm 139. Jeremiah 6:16 6, reads, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. May we too heed Jeremiah's call, as we are people that often seek to trudge our own path, rather than looking to the ancient ones. And also, on this side of the cross, may we look towards Jesus as the way, as the truth, as the life. Jesus' nature is one of an everlasting Father. And so this morning, however you come before him, Figuratively, perhaps our arms are maybe swinging punctures in anger, or our arms are crossed in despondency, or maybe our arms are simply tired. The arms of a loving, perfect father are wide, strong, and tender enough to embrace us still. Amen. Good morning. Um, thank you, Peter and team. I definitely want a copy of that EP when it comes out. Oh, it was beautiful. Uh, my name is Lucinda, and I have the privilege of introducing my husband Mike's um, painting up here today. Mike asked me a month or so ago if I would write a poetic response to his piece in a way to offer a different voice. Um, and I was uncertain at first because I feel like his piece speaks for itself. Um, 
but we had collaborated earlier this fall on an art show downtown. He did some installations and I wrote some poetry to go along with it. And so as we were talking and thinking about it, I was like, okay, well, let me, let me give this a shot and, and kind of do it here. Um, and he was explaining to me the concept because, of course, he's been, um, well, I guess I want to say first, like, a, a visual artist wrestles when they're producing their work. They wrestle with the concepts, they wrestle with the colors and the perspective and the lines. Um, and, and Mike has been wrestling with this piece for months, as you can see, with the, the layers and the concepts of what's going on here. And so now it's his time to rest because he has said his piece. And a, a visual person says it visually, and it's for us as the viewers to discern the narrative that he is trying to tell. Of course, you can ask him questions, but um, that's part of the reason why I'm up here too. So as he was explaining the piece to me and the concepts, as he was thinking about them, it's this idea that as a young child, our first impression of the father, a father, is from our earthly fathers. And when we're little, we want so much to be like them. We want their strength, and, and we look at them, and we look in the mirror, and we just try to do what daddy's doing, right? Um, and then at some point throughout our years, we realize that our fathers are broken. And we begin to wrestle with this idea of, of brokenness in uh, the image of our father and within our families and within ourselves. And so then the question is, what do we do with that? We can either sit here and just continue to look at our earthly father and our earthly surroundings, or we can shift our gaze upward and look at the heavenly father and, um, and the beauty that comes out of this wrestling um, and, and the growth. So the rose here uh, could represent um, the heavenly father who is, like just the beauty of what is. It can also represent the wrestling that comes, you know, the toiling of the plant within the ground to really birth forth the, the beauty of the flower that's there. Um, and I also just want to point out, uh, so this says likeness down here. So over time, as our gaze turns upward and, and we have a clear understanding of who our Heavenly Father is, we become transformed into the likeness of our Heavenly Father. And you'll see here that the boy, his gaze is on a dove up here, representing the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit um, in our lives in the transformation. Um, so as he was telling me about this piece and just kind of how he was working through it, I was reminded of something I was told a couple decades ago. Um, somebody had said to me, well, your perspective of God is, is whatever you think of your earthly father. And that's one of those things that there's probably elements of truth in it, but I don't think it's an absolute in our lives. And so I've always just kind of sat with it and wrestled with it. And so I was thinking in the framework of this painting and the everlasting father, um, is there an instance in the Bible where we can, we can see and um, that we can learn from? And I've been meditating a lot on Psalm 86, 11, which talks about having an undivided heart. And it made me think of David. David wrote that psalm. And I thought, David had an earthly father. I, don't, I had never just made that connection before. And yet David in the Bible is called the man after God's own heart. And yet he has an earthly father. He had an earthly father as well. And we don't know much about that relationship, except we know that when all of David's brothers were called 
um, to line up so Samuel could choose the next king. David's not in that line. He's out in the fields with the sheep. And he could have stewed on that, but I don't think he did. He just sought God through that. Um, And so I wrote this piece here. Thank you. And I'm going to stand up here and read it. Um, But I, I encourage you to look here at this the original or at the digital copy up there of the piece while I read it in just hopes that um, perhaps the words that I've written here will help um, help you kind of dig deeper into what Mike painted. I call this piece Even David after David in the Bible. Memories. Faded, scratched, jumbled and crumbled like an old piece of paper. Sunsets over the lake, mixed with summer scents, grass cut, pine growing. Push me higher, Daddy. I want to fly with the birds. Tall and strong, I marvel and wish someday I will have his strength. Long strides, I run to keep up and hope. Someday, too, I will take big steps. Memories. Blazing sun. He stands in the shadows of the trees. Come play, Daddy. You play, he says. The sun scorches my skin. The shadows that shelter also hide stifled sobs, simmering anger, slurred speech. A host of treasures locked deep within like a chest buried in the sand under a tide of life and wandering. I wonder, who is this father? What is man that God should be mindful of him? A poor reflection at best of the glorious image he was meant to bear. And yet, the Heavenly Father's mind is consumed with a love everlasting for the broken and mortal. For even a good father will fade, as our memories do. I think of David, the man who sought after God's own heart. Even David had an earthly father who chided and prided in his sons, possibly causing strife and jealousy in a culture marked by strength and valor. Even David, the last born, the last for privilege and favor, inheritance and blessing, did not harbor bitterness and envy. Instead, he wrote love songs and hymns of praise binding his heart to God's, his true father, Humbled in the keeping and feeding of his flock, David searched the heavens at dawn when the sun broke through the darkness of the night, bathing his pasture in a warm orange light. David knew he was a stranger in a foreign land, at times with no place to rest his head. So he asked of the Lord one thing. One thing he asked, to dwell in the house of the Lord for all of his days. Even David, often plagued by pursuit and opposition, exhaustion, set his face beyond troubles to gaze upon the beauty of his Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of he who is, who was, who will be, the beauty of him who is holy and he who makes men holy. For even David knew that the eyes of our Heavenly Father are consumed with a love everlasting for the broken and the mortal, the only father that will not fade, even though our memories do.